0: Bum bum ba bum bum ba bam bum 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 ba bum bum ba bum bum ba dum, bum bum ba dum, bum bum do dum, bum bum ba dum, bum 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 ba bum bum ba dum, bum bum ba bum 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 You are now in session with the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson.
1: I'm Brad Gullickson.
0: And each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four-color realm. This month we're strapping on our utility belts with Barbara Gordon and Dick Grayson of the DC Comics Universe. And we're applying Dr. Roberta M. Gilbert's Extraordinary Relationships, A New Way of Thinking About Human Interactions, to their relationship woes...
1: You know what, Lisa? Yeah. I really appreciate the way that you do those intros every week. I am filled with appreciation, and I love to use the word appreciation, <laughs> even though Larry David of Curb Your Enthusiasm fame has negated all use of the word appreciation. Now, we are way behind on Curb Your Enthusiasm. I don't even remember what season that was. We've
0: watched- I think it, I hopefully it is 10.
1: No, it's definitely not 10. I think it was season nine where he was talking about appreciation. We've blitzed through all 10 seasons during this pandemic, but of all the uh, idiotic uh, attacks that Larry David has done, his assault on the word appreciation bugs me the most.
0: I think he doesn't, I think that he is talking about the anticipatory use of the word appreciate, like as a passive aggressive thing. Like, do you know what I would super appreciate right now? Uh, you putting your shoes on because your toenails are grody?
1: but you know i I use the word appreciate all the time and i'm I'm probably i'm I'm pretty sure that the listeners know that. yeah, uh, but what I love about the word appreciate is it's it's more than just saying thank you. It is like saying um, it's a validation it, it it is it is saying that the the person you are with. Uh, they are going above and beyond in some way.
0: Yeah. And I guess the, like, if you go to the, like, textbook definition of appreciate, like, it's ga- you're gaining value. Like, uh, by that interaction, life in general is appreciating in value. It's like, getting more value. Does that make
1: sense? I think that makes sense. Uh, At at the very least, uh, when we watched that Larry David episode, uh, I felt hurt. I felt seen. (laughs) And then I found myself um, talking about the word appreciation and using the word appreciation in emails all over the place. And uh, I'm not going to stop, Larry David. You can't stop me.
0: I can't think of something that, like, I can't think of another word that you could sub in for appreciate, like, when you're asking a favor.
1: Uh, But I don't. I don't use appreciation uh, as like asking a favor. Like you know, when I'm uh, talking to publicists via email, you know, I say much appreciated, thanks for uh, making this interview work or whatever. But do
0: you only use much appreciated after you have the interview or?
1: No, like, I, hey. I mean, no, it, it, it's it's usually in the uh, uh, setup process.
0: Yeah. So so, so it I is
1: like passively implying like you're going to do this for me. If you <laughs> don't
0: do it, I will feel nothing towards you where well, I'm thinking about you, where there could be appreciation. There's just a dark
1: void. Fine, fine, <laughs> fine. But I can tell you another thing that I appreciate yes. uh, is all the reviews we've been getting on our iTunes account this week.
0: Yes. Gratitude,
1: yes, thank you Yes, uh, words of affirmation, we need them num, uh, num, And num. we got a bunch of them uh, And we're not going to like do them all here right now We're going to dish them out over the course of the next several episodes uh, Because we like the way it makes us feel Up first we have Dave from the Pizza and Parsecs podcast Or uh, at uh, Pizza and Parsecs on Twitter Lisa, why don't you go ahead and read his five star review
0: Don't mind if I do Earnest and passionate Been loving diving into the CBCC catalog. Brad and Lisa bring us some of the best comic book discussion out there. I was hooked after the first episode. Do you like my read? It's very perky. Uh, This is what I imagine he sounds like. They have a charming, dynamic, hysterical banter, and an unapologetic passion for comics. While they certainly leverage their vast insight and knowledge, catering to the diehard comic fans, they present it in a way that new readers slash those that are unfamiliar with the characters in a way that's easy to understand and inspires listeners to dive deeper. I love it and it's quickly made its way to the top of my playlist aww!
1: Yeah, thanks, Dave. really appreciate it. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna do the same to you. We're gonna give uh, pizza and parsecs a listen to. And well, if you don't suck, We'll leave a five-star review. (laughs) No pressure, no sucking.
0: I feel like he would appreciate it if we did leave a five-star review. For
1: sure, for sure. He would definitely appreciate it.
0: We are going to do a little bit of a push, a very transparent push for five-star reviews right now. It really helps the podcast. We're looking to take CBCC, to the next level, don't you agree? Uh,
1: absolutely. You know, not only does it help us nab talent for our Creator Corner episodes, but maybe one day a sponsor or two. Uh, me undies, we are ready.
0: That's right. Um, uh, maybe a mattress or two. A mattress? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can, we can, we need sponsors. A uh, box of <laughs> a box of unassembled food.
1: Yeah, 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 for sure. Unassembled food. Uh, Hello Fresh. Yeah,
0: I love maybe. Hello Fresh. Let's not. Th- let's well, not. We're getting ahead of ourselves.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's get on with this episode, Lisa. I'm feeling gross enough being this thirsty.
0: I Yeah, I feel vulnerable asking for things.
1: For week 3 of our Dick and Babs conversation, we're going to be discussing Oracle Year 1: Born of Hope from Batman Chronicles number 5 and Nightwing Volume 2 Annual number 2.
0: Just a little light reading.
1: Just a little light reading. Um Oracle, I'm so excited to be in the Oracle and Nightwing era because this is the one that I grew up with. I didn't start reading Batman comics until the Nightfall storyline, which escalated into Bane breaking Bruce Wayne's back in 1993. I was never much of a Nightwing fan as a kid. Um, that fandom would take a few decades to percolate within me, but I was instantly attracted to the notion of Barbara Gordon as Oracle. Mm. Batman The Killing Joke is one of those classic comics that every Bat fan reads at the start of their fandom. Lisa, I know it was one of your first Batman comics.
0: Yeah. And it is also the Batman comic that almost broke our comic book book club.
1: Yeah. And you know what's so funny? What eventually broke that comic book book club was from hell. So <laughs> Alan Moore destroyed our book club.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but Thanks a lot, Alan. The Killing
1: Joke is right up it. there with The Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One. However, while I still pretty much adore the Frank Miller comics, despite their right-wing uber macho point of view, uh, The Killing Joke becomes less and less appealing to me with each passing year, with the exception of Brian Boland's art and the theory that Batman murders the Joker during the climax, which was recently uh, made popular after Grant Morrison appeared on Kevin Smith's Fat Man on Batman podcast. Right. Uh, but a big reason why I find The Killing Joke so distasteful these days is in its treatment of Barbara Gordon. Her trauma is there to elevate Bruce Wayne's heroism, Not a new trope, but one that is particularly painful for fans of her character, right? And this hurt, I felt, was not felt alone. Married couple and comic book scribes John Ostrander and Kim Yale wanted to explore the violence perpetrated against Babs by Killing Joke writer Alan Moore. And at the time, when the Killing Joke uh, finished up, there was no plan for Oracle. She could have magically gotten better, but Yale saw opportunity in treating this assault realistically.
0: And it's that's so brilliant. Right.
1: And in 1988, Ostrander and Yale introduced this shadowy figure known as Oracle within their comic book series, Suicide Squad. For 15 issues, numbers 23 through 38, no one knew who this character was, but at the end of 38, it was revealed that it was the paralyzed Barbara Gordon. But this reveal kind of just sat there for a bit with only a few references popping up here and there within the DC Comics universe until Ostrander and Yale brought her back to Suicide Squad in issue 48 and the puppet master Amanda Waller asked her to join Task Force X. At this same time, Barbara Kessel, the writer of Hawk and Dove, starts to use Oracle as a reoccurring character. Going forward, this was the new status quo for Barbara Gordon, and it afforded Ostrander and Yale an opportunity to tell Oracle's origin story in Batman Chronicles number five, which we're going to dig into here in a second. Ooh. But of course, Lisa, all this comes crashing down in 2011 when DC Comics reboots their entire line under the New 52 initiative and Barbara Gordon is restored into the role of Batgirl. Boo! Yeah, you know, you don't need to hear us bemoan the New 52 reboot again. We've done that plenty. There are some great comics to be read in that era, but the erasure of Oracle and the resurrection of Alec Holland as Swamp Thing are too unforgivable sins that neither lisa or i will probably ever get over never never never. (laughs) (laughs) however lisa there is hope recently dc comics as part of their dc inc line for young adult readers published the oracle code by and forgive me i'm not gonna be able to pronounce your names properly because i'm a terrible person
0: not Uh a terrible person You're a person with a limitation?
1: Yeah, a limitation. Mariette Nijkamp and Manuel Prietano. It's set in an entirely different continuity where Barbara Gordon was not shot by the Joker, but just some random mugger that she interrupted when she heard a cry for help down a dark alley. I read it earlier this week and it's excellent and I hope it starts a trend of more Oracle stories. There really are not many characters like this version of Barbara Gordon, you know? We got lots of Batgirls, too many Batgirls, but we only had one Oracle. Uh, DC, recognize the brilliance you already possess and run with it.
0: Absolutely, in terms of like visibility, I mean, I, there are a lot of people who can relate to Oracle.
1: Right, and as I'm sure we're going to discuss when we talk about Batman Chronicles number five, Ostrander and Yale go out of their way to chase that relatability, to chase empathy in their uh, depiction of Barbara Gordon in Oracle year one.
0: Okay, so that's Oracle's deal. Like, what about Nightwing? When did Dick Grayson go from Robin the Teen Wonder to Nightwing, the the man wonder. <laughs> Do we meet, need more great butt visibility in comics?
1: Uh, I mean, honestly, yes. I think we <laughs> certainly needed more male butt visibility in comics. It's I think a little Nightwing objectification, it, it, I think that's fine. I think that's good.
0: I appreciate it. Yeah,
1: uh, but the origin of the name is kind of funky. Nightwing was originally the name Superman bestowed upon himself when he was stranded on the Kryptonian bottled city of Canada Candor with his pal Jimmy Olsen in 1963. Inspired by the actions of Batman and Robin, Supes and Jimmy protected the streets of Kandor under the names Nightwing and Flamebird because there were no Robins or Bats. So that would be a reference that the Kandorians would not understand.
0: That is very silly. I did not like like uh, because Batman comics and Robin comics still existed for the reader.
1: Uh, For the reader, but not for the Kandorians, Lisa. Okay. They only knew about Nightwings and Flamebirds. In Tales of the Teen Titans number 44, Dick Grayson dons the Nightwing costume for the first time. He's tired of being just the sidekick to Batman, uh, and he chooses Nightwing as his new persona as a tribute to both the Dark Knight and Superman.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: However, after the first Crisis of Infinite Earths reboot in 1985, Nightwing was retooled as a famous Kryptonian vigilante who inspires Dick Grayson to take up the mantle, or at least the name. Also, post-crisis, Dick doesn't leave Bruce because he was tired of their partnership. Instead, he was shot in the shoulder by the Joker, and Batman kicks him out of the Batcave because he doesn't want to lose a partner. He's terrified at at that possibility, and he just can't handle that relationship Mm -hmm. anymore. But of course, Dick immediately joins up with the Teen Titans because, you know, F you, Bruce, you don't get to dictate Dick's life.
0: This is something we're going to be talking about in the relationship portion, like, a lot.
1: Yeah, I think so, for sure. Uh, You know, Dick has been Nightwing ever since, with the occasional side hustle as Batman when Bruce Wayne has been taken off the chessboard, whether that was Nightfall or um, what did Grant Morrison do, the R.I.P. storyline, right? But there you go. Okie dokie. We are here in my favorite era of Dick and Babs. But before we dig into Oracle Year One and Nightwing Annual Number Two, Lisa, we got to check in with our love expert, Dr. Roberta M. Gilbert.
0: And her book, Extraordinary Relationships, A New Way of Thinking About Human Interactions. She's going to help the dynamite duo manage their anxiety so that they can be better partners using Dr. Murray Bowen's family systems theory. Now we're in part two, entitled The Titular Extraordinary Relationships, in which Dr. Gilbert describes what the ideal extraordinary relationship really looks like and what we can do to make the extraordinary more ordinary. A lot of our relationship tension comes from an imbalance of our togetherness and individuality forces. The togetherness force finds expression in companionship, family, and society itself. When anxiety is high, you're willing to give up some of your individuality to pass off some of your anxiety. Mm -hmm. Think fading into the crowd.
1: I'm a master of that skill, Lisa. (laughs) You may think so. (laughs)
0: The individuality force is the opposite. It's the desire to feel autonomous and separate from others. When a relationship is less emotionally mature, the anxiety being passed through the group intensifies rather than relieves, and Hmm. the togetherness brings on more anxiety rather than less. Hmm. Instead of fading into the crowd, you want to separate yourself from the crowd. So what's the golden ratio of individuality to togetherness? Short answer, the one that's the least reactive. Blech, I know. I find that answer unsatisfying too. Too much togetherness, and no one is getting their emotional sponge wrong. Too much individuality, and then you're not even in a relationship. You're just home, alone, wringing your own sponge.
1: Oh, dirty. (laughs)
0: Long answer, It does the relationship the most good if everyone strives for more individuality while still being there for their relationship with the confidence that when their individuality is not enough, their partners or family members will be there for them.
1: Yeah, 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 that makes sense, bat family.
0: I should say this is the hippy-dippy Lisa interpretation of what Dr. Gilbert is saying. Dr. Gilbert really emphasizes individuality to the degree I feel like, does she she even like people? Oh, really? Yeah, we'll get into it later. So how do we work on our individuality? First, we have to distinguish what is our basic self from our functional or pseudo self. Your basic self is a part of yourself that remains the same regardless of your relationship to others. It is more carefully thought out principles that are non-negotiable in relationships. Your functional self is the self you present in order to function in the group. Your functional self may present differently depending on the group that you're in and is guided by teachings from your family, culture, or education that you adopted unthinkingly or as a reaction. For an example, I would say, that my kindness is part of my basic self, Hmm. while my tendency to make jokes when things are getting awk is like (laughs) part of my functional self. I guess me and uh, Dick Grayson have that in common. Do you have anything that you think is like, okay? this is my basic self. This is my functional self.
1: Uh, Let me think for a second. Uh, So correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think of my basic self as being, you know, I'm passionate about stories and storytelling. I want I want to experience as many stories as possible. I want to hear your opinions on those stories. But at the same time, part of my functional self is that when that is challenged, like when an opinion is challenged or when I straight up disagree with you in terms of your interpretation of that movie or what have you, <laughs> uh, nine times out of ten, I'm not going to challenge you on it. I, like I'm not interested in having the conflict. Mm, you know, yeah. I will skirt the conflict. I will accept, I will judge your opinion. <laughs> I might even uh, nod uh, an agreement or two possibly, but then I'll quietly think to myself, you're so wrong on that.
0: Yeah, and this is more how you deal with like, with me, sometimes you'll correct me specifically. Well, with the saying- people
1: that I, I, I know very, very well, I will, I'm will. i free and open to debate. Like yeah. uh, when we go to our other podcast, In the Mouth of darkness with Brian and Darren, uh, you know, I'll, we'll debate all, all day long. All night long uh-huh. uh, about the Five Bloods or whatever that movie is for that week. But if I'm at a friend's house or like some social party or a Zoom call these days, yeah. I keep pretty quiet. I keep my opinions to myself because I'm not looking to engage uh, deeply on a surface level.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you you have the concept, and I think I think that was pretty insightful. People who have a greater sense of basic self are like Batman. They're less concerned with being loved, (laughs) accepted, or criticized by others and have a clearer head when deciding if something aligns with their principles, while someone who has a greater sense of functional self are like Nightwing. They have difficulty making decisions because they are more concerned with the relationship outcomes rather than aligning with their principles, which leads to excessive worrying or rebellion, both Mm. of which are reactionary.
1: Yeah, cool, 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 cool. I like this.
0: More on that topic later, faux show. Being Batman is not all it's cracked up to be either. His unwillingness to change his function as leader and order giver is what ultimately drove Robin away Mm. and put Batgirl in the position of having to choose sides. Mm, 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 mm. Both Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson can strike the right balance by doing regular thoughtful inventories of their principle. What is negotiable versus non-negotiable? Am I being reactionary or thoughtful? If you are feeling overwhelmed by a decision, ask yourself, is this going against my principles hmm. or my perceived function? So tell us Dr. Gilbert, what does an extraordinary relationship really look like? Here's a quote for you. In the best possible relationship, there would be a greater degree of individuality and less togetherness. Mm. Although relationships fulfill the togetherness force, there is less need for fusion or togetherness at high levels because there is less undifferentiation. Very sexy, Mm. Roberta. Mm. Very, very sexy. (laughs) Let me reach into my canary yellow utility belt and pull out my rose-colored bat glasses. A relationship should not be two partial beings trying to be one complete person, but two individuals who support each other while they strive to be two awesome people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You get twice as many people and way, way more awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. I feel like this is such an American ideal. Mm -hmm. You know, it is the Captain Kirk, the needs of uh, the few outweigh the needs of the many instead of the Spock, which is the needs of the many, outweigh the needs of the few.
0: Like, this is where I disagree with Dr. Gilbert because she keeps going back to the individuality force, the individuality force, I guess because that seems what's in the most control, but I feel like she's devaluing the togetherness force yeah, yeah. because like our togetherness force is the way we launder our emotions when like when we're feeling anxious. So, yes, we should always be making progress toward processing our emotions better, but at the same time, being the the greater our family is the bigger our family is the more of that laundry is getting done as a whole
1: mm. i mean i feel like also this goes into the cliche of you got to work on you before you can work on us kind of thing
0: yeah i i think that that's true especially like if you're creating new fusion you want to go in with the emotional processing power to take on other people's stuff like if you're if you're not processing your own emotions and you're just going to people and doing like these like uh anxiety dumps on them you're gonna wear out everybody if you're if you're dishing out anxiety all the time but you're not taking any on it's just it's straight up not fair true true when you have two individuals who want to grow into an emotionally mature, extraordinary relationship, mm-hmm. what they need to work on is their SEO.
1: Uh, search engine optimization, Lisa?
0: No, Brad. Content create much? <laughs> you, you can totally tell what our jokes are written in. It's okay. <laughs> There's separateness, equality, and openness. Separateness means that each person is is only responsible for his or her own happiness and emotional fulfillment. This relates back to what we were just talking about. Don't dish out anxiety that you can't later soak up. Mm. Also, each person can only speak for themselves. It doesn't matter how long you've known a person, you don't know their mind. Heck, they don't even know their own mind. This is true. Trying to tell someone what they're thinking is like trying to hold the steering wheel of a car you are not driving. It's rude dangerous, and they'll probably never get to where they're going. Equality means that neither person gets to hog or spare all of the function. One partner doesn't get to take on all of the responsibilities to make the other partner overly dependent on them. Conversely, one partner doesn't get to opt out of the day-to-day functioning so that the other person has to take on more than they can bear. Brad and my principles are very, very close to identical, but not exactly, Hmm. because we are two people with different perspectives, and we live in families of of individuals who have their own perspectives. That has to get along in a society of infinite perspectives, and guess what? Sometimes you just have to make nice. It's not fair to make your partner run themselves ragged, putting on their functional selves while you sit pretty in your basic self.
1: Share the load. That is
0: right. Openness has to do with our favorite C word.
1: Huh? What? I have a favorite C word.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you do. Communication. Oh, God. (laughs) Communication is an important part of any relationship, and it doesn't take an expert to point out when it is not working. But because it is so glaringly obvious, what is being said or done is often misidentified as the problem. Dr. Gilbert posits that it's not the content or lack thereof of communication that needs to be fixed, but rather the posture that is being taken during the conversation, communication. Mm-hmm. Remember, distance, conflict, triangling, and overfunctioning, underfunctioning reciprocity. Mm-hmm. When these defensive, reactionary postures are addressed, the communication and the content within it often improve or even resolve automatically. Optimal communication is when all of the four horsemen of the closed apocalypse are avoided. First, distance. Distance is when two partners avoid communicating by filling the air with either silence or idle chatter. Like when Barbara Gordon pretended to be asleep when (laughs) Robin was awkwardly confessing his love for her. Yep, yep,
1: yep, yep, yep.
0: Optimal communication is when partners can talk about relevant topics relating to their basic selves. Then, conflict. When partners are in conflict, emotion clouds the mind, impairing, clear-headed thinking. Since each person is preoccupied thinking about the other by serving up accusations, blame, and criticism, thinking about self is lost. Think killer moth and the cavalier blaming each other for not finding the (laughs) bat cave. Optimal communication is intellectually reactive, but emotionally non-reactive. With triangling, the relevant topics are discussed through a filter their child, society, perhaps their favorite comic book couples, <laughs> rather than being direct. Brad oh. and I are the example for this one. No further <laughs> example needed. Optimal communication is two partners being direct with each other about their individual selves and their relationship. With overfunctioning, underfunctioning reciprocity, one partner becomes the speaker while the other is the listener or where one person shares their perspective and then proceeds to also explain the other person's perspective. This is Batman making all of the plans so that Robin feels like he has no autonomy. Uh, uh. Optimal communication is mutual. Each person is speaking or listening more or less the same amount of time Or each person is only talking for themselves.
1: I know a lot of Batmans.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we all do. (laughs) Of course, for optimal communication, there should be at least one person listening at all times. How can you tell if you are actually listening?
1: What's that? Were you you saying something? (laughs) I
0: feel like, I mean, you're joking, but I feel like I actually have problems with this. The best listening. What? No comment. Oh, the best listening (laughs) is entirely empathetic. While your partner is speaking, you are truly trying on their point of view as what they're saying unfolds, like being a passenger in their mind car. You don't predict where it's going. You don't try to pull it in another direction. You don't slam on the brakes. You just ride. Then when it is your turn, they get a ride in your mind car. How can you tell if your partner is listening? Trick question. You can't, so don't tell them that they're not doing it right. (laughs) Get out of the driver's seat. You may end up at the same destination, you may not, but it's okay, guess what? Everyone is leaving the conversation in their own mind car anyway. You are two individuals driving mind cars.
1: Are we driving mind cars or are minds driving meat cars?
0: Uh, oh man, I don't I don't know. I don't know what to say to that.
1: I just like the thought of meat cars.
0: Me too. <laughs> oh man, we have so much in our utility bells to help Dick and Babs become stronger individuals and better partners. First, we should be looking out for when we think they're making decisions with their basic selves and their functional selves. Next, we should be monitoring their relationship extraordinariness by checking in with their SEO. And finally, we should be monitoring their communication for any of those four postures of suboptimal communication. Are we ready to get these love bats on our couch? Yeah,
1: I think this is this is probably the best pairing of extraordinary relationships and story arcs. You know, Oracle Year One and this Nightwing Annual.
0: It, it is pretty great, though yeah. I my heart will always belong to Swamp Thing in common.
1: Uh, I mean, yes, that that was a great pairing. But this, I I was really just saying within Dick and Babs' conversation. Oh, yeah, positively. So we're just doing two issues this week. Uh, We're covering Batman Chronicles number five, published in June of 1996. But just the first short story within, entitled Oracle Year One, Born of Hope, written by husband and wife duo, John Ostrander and Kim Yale. And- we should also mention right here that this was Kim Yale's last story that she wrote before she passed away to breast cancer. And I think that adds this extra layer of...
0: Preciousness.
1: Yeah, preciousness. Uh, And you should also be on the lookout. uh, NPR uh, a little while ago on All Things Considered did a piece on Kim Yale and her involvement with Suicide Squad. I'll go ahead and include that in the show notes. Yes. It's worth a listen. It's only five minutes, but I mean, again, it highlights that preciousness. Uh, The penciler on this is the brilliant Brian Stelfreeze. It's inked by Carl Story, colored by Mark Chiarello, and lettered by John Costanza. There's not much to say about the story itself, like Batman Year One, Batgirl Year One, and the countless other Year One spinoffs, Oracle Year 1 Born of Hope explores the first year of Barbara Gordon in her role of Oracle.
0: I only wish it was longer.
1: I I wish it was a whole series. Yeah. I mean, it's not even an entire comic book. Um the other story we're going to be discussing is Nightwing Volume 2 Annual number 2 published in June of 2007, nearly 11 years to the month after the publication of Batman Chronicles number 5. It's written by Mark Draco penciled by Joe Bennett inked by Jack Jadson, colored by Jason Wright, and lettered by Phil Balzman. Here's what the DC Comics solicits have to say about this issue. One year ago, Dick Grayson pledged his heart to Barbara Gordon, aka Oracle, then nearly surrendered his life during the infinite crisis. Now, learn the full comeback story of Nightwing as it brings to light the story of DC's most star-crossed couple. Now... Oracle Year One, Born of Hope, does not feature Dick Grayson in any way. It yeah. is strictly a Barbara Gordon story. So why did we choose to discuss it for this episode? Well, obviously, the events of the killing joke were uh, traumatic and um, revolutionary to her character. And I think it's important that we get a glimpse at to where her sp- headspace was going into this next phase of her life.
0: It would do Barbara Gordon as Oracle a disservice if we just jump to an Oracle Nightwing story without addressing this radical change in her person.
1: And I think it's incredible that this change was even allowed to occur, right? Kim uh, Yale was upset by what happened to her in The Killing Joke, and she could have easily championed a return to form, go like, you know what, that didn't happen, I don't like that, Let's, let's bring Batgirl back. But instead she chose to lean into this event, to lean into this trauma and tackle it honestly and authentically.
0: And I think from a narrative standpoint, if we were just to, to look at this from a Bowen's family systems theory point of view, because of the events of the killing joke, Barbara Gordon had to let go of this functional part of herself. Batgirl was a response to the anxiety of her father being a cop. It was, um, She was trying to fuse to other vigilantes. She was trying to fuse into the Bat family.
1: And if you go by Batgirl year one, she is Batgirl almost by accident, right? right? She right. goes to that costume party.
0: But she wanted to fuse to Black Canary in yes, particular. Yes, yes. But when she was traumatized, she had to go back and and get re-in-touch re with her basic self. I think her... Barbara Gordon's basic self is a person of Mm service. And she said, how can I now, with my new state of being, align myself with that principle? And that is what Oracle is. Yeah,
1: and by the way, if you want more of Oracle year one, you should read the Oracle code because it takes those ideas and stretches it out into like a proper graphic novel length.
0: Awesome, let's get into it. When we see Batgirl at the beginning of Born of Hope She is in bed, and she is just hating herself. Mm. She is kicking herself for getting shot by the Joker when she feels like she should have known better. Like, she's the daughter of a cop. Like, who opens the door without looking out the peephole? I think
1: she's being way hard on herself, Absolutely,
0: absolutely. (laughs) And then she's startled by the presence of Batman looking in on her. Creeper. And she feels... And she expresses to him that she feels demeaned because the Joker only sees her as an extension or a weaker version of Which
1: is Ostrander and Yale speaking directly to Alan Moore and Boland, right? And what they did to her in the context of the killing joke.
0: Right, but I do think that narratively that also makes sense. Yes, absolutely. And she asks Batman if the... Laughter at the end of the killing joke,
1: which, by the way, how does she know that they were laughing? Like, I know no one was there. That wasn't cut on tape.
0: Mood point, <laughs> mood point. But um, she asks if the the laughter was at her expense, and as Batman, and Batman does his Batman thing, and he just leaves. Distance. Creeper. He just goes completely silent yep. and leaves, and. She hopes that she hurt Batman's feelings.
1: And I hope that she hurt his feelings. And I'm guessing that she definitely did. I also think worth noting is this whole idea of a doctored bullet, like she would have died if the Joker hadn't used the doctor bullet. I and think
0: that- that's a lot of effort for the Joker. Do well, you think he'd really care? No, about-
1: I, I don't. I don't. I think that is a DC editorial note uh, to, like, over-explain how she survived the killing joke, but uh, that kind of thing happens all the time in life. Yeah, it's ridiculous. She spends ten weeks and three days in the hospital, uh, and when she finally gets out, there's a swarm of press waiting for her and her father.
0: Right. And we see what a dramatic change this has been to just her basic functioning, like, as a person. Like, it takes her an entire page to get into a car and get... Her seatbelt buckled, and everything. Right, and
1: for a comic that is so short, to take a whole page to show her getting into the back of a car to really sell this, um, this, this pain, this transformation, this struggle that she is getting onto is really significant.
0: I think it's the in for empathy. Yes, like it's putting us all in the position of, oh my goodness, I just stand up, I get into my car, it's no big deal. Also, she while she is trying to get into this car, she's processing this humiliation and this anger that she feels towards her dad because if her dad wasn't Commissioner Gordon, the press wouldn't care at all. So we see two parallel bitternesses. She has a bitterness towards Batman because she feels like she's an extension of a lesser extension of Batman. She also feels like she's a lesser extension of her father. Mm-hmm. So she's really um, wondering how her functional self is supposed to fit in anymore.
1: It's interesting if you go back again to the Batgirl year one version of Barbara Gordon where she was under the shadow of her dad and that, she has now gained a second shadow through her career as Batgirl and that shadow being Bruce Wayne Batman.
0: Right, she's clearly not getting her emotional needs met by either relationship, mm-hmm. which is why she now feels this repulsive force of, you know, that individuality force. I need to individualize myself from these two dads. Right. My two dads. And, and
1: that's what Yale and Ostrander did through Suicide Squad and Oracle Year One is they removed Barbara Gordon from just being a sidekick. I mean, they they've made Barbara Gordon into a full blown, true blooded hero.
0: Mastermind.
1: Mastermind, yeah. And speaking to Bruce Wayne's guilt, Batman's guilt, uh, Barbara Gordon gets a grant from the Bruce Wayne Foundation to get a new computer. And through that computer, she discovers the World Wide Web. And Oracle Year One is a little uh, dated in its uh, Internet knowledge and terminology <laughs> and the way it functions. But, you you know, it, it gets the job done. She dives into this world of shadows and starts to develop or redevelop those detective skills that she had prior to donning the Batgirl costume.
0: I think what she finds so welcoming about the online community is that she feels like the world sees her as limited because now she is in a chair. So by being online and being anonymous, she's on what she views as a level playing playing field where she can kind of experiment with her own individualization. And becoming independent in this way makes her more content. She starts finding happiness again.
1: But she still has to have breakfast with dear old dad.
0: That's right. And one morning, he is crabby. (laughs) He is withdrawn, right? Distance is his preferred posture of overwhelmedness. And it turns out he's troubled by this case. There's this woman, Ashley Mavis Powell, who's been laundering money, and he is totally confounded as to how.
1: Because she's a metahuman.
0: With this superhuman ability of corrupting files?
1: Well, kind of like, uh, like like again, Spock, mind melding, right? She mind melds with the computer as if the computer has a mind.
0: Right. And she's, a, side note, also a child abuser.
1: And she's a child abuser. She's a child abuser, yes. <laughs> so
0: Barbara Gordon decides to pursue this case on her own. So she knows that her dad, not a computer guy. He's not going He's to. He's not going to do it. So she can do her service thing out from under his nose and out from under the nose of Batman.
1: And if she had her way, she would stick to the office. She'd stick to her computer, but... Dad wants her to get out and about. Dad wants her to get used to um, navigating the world in her chair, and that is terrifying to her. And again, we get a great page where we see what a struggle it is for her to do these minuscule day-to-day tasks. And as she's trying to cross the street in downtown Gotham, uh, this woman approaches her and offers kindness.
0: Right, she offers to help her across the street, and Barbara Gordon declines, but the woman grabs her chair anyway and starts pushing her across the street and then dumps her into the street.
1: And we learn it's Mavis Interface.
0: And I love this little bit of narration from Barbara's perspective. She made me feel like a helpless victim again and had laughed doing it, Hmm. which recalls the laughter she talked about on the first two pages, the Mm -hmm. laughter Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. Batman and the Joker. So now-
1: Oh, damn.
0: So laughter is now a trigger for her. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't
1: pick up on that at all.
0: Right, so she associates all laughter now being at her expense. So she's in this kind of emotional loop. She's, She's reactive when it comes to people laughing.
1: I need to go and see if that thought was carried through in the Suicide Squad comics, or if any other writers picked up on that and carried that with Oracle. Ooh. I gotta revisit some comics.
0: Ooh, but I mean, that little piece like thrilled me. Yeah,
1: that's awesome. Uh, Way to go, Lisa. I totally did not pick up on that.
0: After that experience with Interface, she becomes more determined. Mm. So she... Throws it out to the online community. Yeah, in
1: quotes, online community, because the online community is Batman, who, again, is a creeper and is w- watching everything that Barbara Gordon is doing. Like, he is doing that thing where he, he's like, oh, there's potential here. Maybe I can help her into becoming another aide. Would we
0: say that he is per- perhaps over-functioning? He's yeah, trying to he's, it, control yes, her life? he's
1: definitely over <laughs> Um
0: But- he hooks her up with Richard Dragon, who is, I guess, like a homeless sensei. Yeah,
1: well, he's the go-to kung fu guy of the DC universe. Uh, not only did he train Oracle, but he's also responsible for the tutelage of the original question, Huntress, Renee, Renee Montoya, and um, uh, uh, Lady Shiva.
0: Yeah, oh, well, he gets around. That he does. <laughs> um, she, he wants her to get in touch with her basic self. And he also begins training her in the art of Philippine Escrema, Uh, stick fighting. Very cool. Interesting.
1: And it's after this moment where we get probably my favorite page in the entire story. It's six panels with this very striking red background. It's Barbara Gordon in a dream confronting the Oracle.
0: The ancient priestess who speaks for the gods. What I love about this page is what Oracle says to her. She says, you have lost nothing that matters. You have everything you need Everything before leads up to now, and now leads to what shall be. Those are like life words. She's saying, what you've lost is your functional self. But your basic stealth is still intact. It still has your principles.
1: But in that fifth panel, she responds to that, I don't understand. And the Oracle says, take away your mask and I will take away mine. Then you will understand. And then in the sixth panel, where Barbara pulls back the cowl and the color red fades away, then you turn the page And Oracle, background of red, but also it's not just the color red now, it's like this circuitry. Yeah. And we see that the Oracle is also Barbara Gordon.
0: Yeah, it's her face. The Oracle has her face. Beautiful.
1: And when she wakes up, she realizes that the internet can be her mask, can be her next persona.
0: So she then presents herself online to Interface as Oracle and sends Interface racing across the internet, chasing her. And Batgirl begins to recognize a pattern in her movements and catches her in a logic trap so that, Interface is now just kind of like a snake it, eating her tail. She's just processing and processing and, so and not like, getting anywhere.
1: When we came across Interface originally, and I was like, oh, this is a really silly superpower. I, like, does it need to even be a character with a superpower? can it just be a villain that she traps? But then you get this final panel on the bottom of that page where she is trapped Interface in this loop, and it's nightmarish. Oh, absolutely. Like, She's what? got these
0: red targets for eyes, and her tongue is like, Salivating. It's a,
1: f- it's a fantastic execution of Oracle's skills.
0: Interface's meta level fluency on the computers was no match for Oracle. Oracle's ability to emotionally detach, look <laughs> at the situation from the outside, uh-huh. and get Interface into this fervor that she cannot break from. Yeah. So she then takes that momentum and calls Interface on the phone using a voice synthesizer and threatens her. And the result of those threats is that Interface feels so frightened that she turns herself in.
1: And, you know, the next day, Daddy Gordon comes in and says, like, huh, Interface, she turned herself in, case closed, don't have to worry about that. And Barbara has this, like, private satisfaction, right, of having caused that. Although it's not that private of a satisfaction, Lisa, because Bruce Wayne, Batman, is certainly aware of what she did.
0: But she doesn't know. But she doesn't know. She doesn't know. He's
1: still creeping and lurking in the shadows.
0: That's right? Um, so she goes back to Richard Dragon, and she's like, "I'm on the right track now." And like every sensei ever is like, "You're on the right track. You're your own sensei." And he releases her. And then in the final panel, it's years later, and she is she feels what she says is, "I feel more me than ever before." And she's, she looks very content and happy. And it's
1: an incredibly bright panel, all right? Like, it's all yellow. There's these seagulls or doves flying around. I mean, it's it's a panel of relief. It's a, it's a panel of a birth.
0: Yeah, of that basic self that she's in touch with.
1: Now let's take all of that and apply it to her relationship with Dick Grayson. Yeah. As seen in Nightwing, volume two, annual number two, which has the most insane opening page.
0: Uh, Like, we had to pause our recording and go like, I think we have to read every single word on this page because every single word needs to be addressed.
1: So first caption, one year ago.
0: Second caption, Gotham International Airport.
1: Third caption, the final days of the crisis. More on that in a second.
0: Okay. So you can play, I know know that this is heteronormative, but you're going to play Dick and I'll play Babs. All right. Okay.
1: So go.
0: Dick, I...
1: Let me say this, Babs. It's important. You would think being overly responsible would buy me the luxury to behave irresponsibly every now and then. But, really, it's the opposite. The one time you let go, it stands out like a red flag. And it costs too much. It costs me you.
0: No, it didn't. That was me. I got scared. I just...
1: You were right, I wasn't ready. I'm ready now. Barbara, I have to leave in a few hours to try to save the universe. I don't even know if I'll be alive tomorrow, but if I am, will you marry me?
0: Dick, I. Shh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There you go, first page. Uh,
0: Okay, before we even contextualize, let's just go point by point of all of the problematic garbage (laughs) that is happening on this page. So, very first panel with dialogue in it, he interrupts her.
1: Not for the first time.
0: Not for the first time. Not for the last time. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So he's trying to drive her mind car, and then the next thing he does is tells her tells yeah tells her what he thinks she thinks. He
1: mansplains her emotions.
0: Exactly. And what he's accusing her of is over-functioning, under-functioning reciprocity, right? Like, sh- he's saying, you take care of all of the adult stuff so that I can be irresponsible and I can dysfunction. And so she's,
1: and- He's keeping her in her wheelchair. He's, you like, he is saying, like, you do all the behind-the-scenes stuff, you do your Oracle stuff, I go out there and I kick butt.
0: And apparently, at some point, she kind of pulled the- under functioning, over functioning stilts out from under him. And he he felt himself flounder. And so he's saying, like, you proved your point. I need to step up. I need to be a man. Then he proposes. Yeah. And then before she can answer, he interrupts her. Again. So <laughs> it's a non-proposal proposal. Like, okay, hold on to this ring for a while. And you can wear it or not, and then you can tell me later if you put it on. I guess. Yeah,
1: but this is one year ago. This is one year ago.
0: Yeah. Um. Just this is just. Uh, I'm throwing this in the podcast for free. Here's some free advice. Never pop the question. Right. That's something. That's something that I hope is only a literary device. You shouldn't propose marriage to someone until you've discussed
1: marriage. You should probably know the answer.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> it's just healthier. Yeah. It should be a question of when it's going to happen, not if it's going to happen.
0: Absolutely. Uh,
1: but you turn the page. Dick is now in Metropolis fighting alongside Batman and the other heroes, taking down Deathstroke, trying to avoid being zapped by Alexander Luther from another earth. And yeah, so this is the big crisis event. Lisa how confusing was all of this?
0: Uh super confusing. In my notes I called Luther Alexander Luther. Mm-hmm. I called him gold guy with poised with laser hands on levitating platform.
1: Yeah, so Okay, Infinite Crisis, just to give a little context for those that don't know, like every DC event must be a crisis. This was conceived as a direct sequel to 1985's Crisis of Infinite Earths, but not Brad Meltzer's Identity Crisis from 2004. Written by Jeff Johns and illustrated by Phil Jimenez, Infinite Crisis makes for one insane Wikipedia entry. (laughs) I never bothered with the event when it was released, but I did read the weekly 52 series that filled in the gaps after DC Comics launched all its titles one year into the future after Infinite Crisis, which is where Nightwing annual number two picks up. Uh, It's it's nuts. There's Superboy Prime. There's Alexander Luther Jr. There's Earth 2, Earth 3, Earth whatever. Basically, all you need to know is that Dick got the crap kicked out of him. Uh, And this series ended with Bruce, Dick and Tim, uh, the other Robin, going off on a therapeutic retreat.
0: So yeah, so this comic is just filling in all of those things?
1: Yeah. Okay. And one of those things is this coma that Dick went into after the Battle of Crisis. And he has this terrifying nightmare sequence where he's battling demon versions of Batman and Deathstroke and various characters. He's He has the, all this guilt for failing Bloodhaven as well as uh, Batman and who is at the end of this nightmare sequence, but of course the Joker, because all bat stories must come back to the Joker, especially those that deal with Oracle. And we have a direct reference to the killing joke. You have the uh, the gun comes out, there's Barbara Gordon and she has a target on her. She's like one of those... Uh, firing range uh, cutouts, and the Joker pulls the shot. You get a bunch of ha ha ha's, kaboom. Dick wakes up screaming. That's how he comes out of his coma.
0: And Barbara Gordon is there, and she has been watching over him, sleeping in this coma for three weeks
1: and he wants to go right back into the crisis. And Barbara says, uh, guess what? Crisis is over, and also, you just got out of a coma.
0: The actual quote is, I just brought you out of a medically induced coma. Uh, With Dr. Midnight, she has been nursemaid to him this entire time.
1: Yeah, she's picked up a lot of the skills since Oracle year one. You know, she is running with Birds of Prey. She has her own little super team. She she knows what to do. I I don't think Dick is the first person that she has dealt with in a coma.
0: And she also has a lot of firsthand experience going through like a traumatic medical experience, which she's going to pull from a lot in this comic. Dick
1: got away way easier than she ever did.
0: That's 100% true. And I think that, she does bring that reality to his perspective often. So she demands that he go back to bed, and he, he's like, I, I like that when you say it different. <laughs> <laughs> They're definitely adults now. Things are being a little bit more... Explicit. That's
1: an interesting point, also, because one of the things that uh, Crisis of Infinite Earths retconned was the age difference between Barbara and Dick. They are now the same age. She is not a little bit older. So that removes some of that weird, icky factor that we experienced during our Bronze Age issues from two weeks back.
0: I think that had to be done. I think she still could have been a year or two older. Just what that does in our culture with the power dynamic of a relationship between men and
1: women well i mean if these characters were a little bit older if they were in their 30s and he was in his late 20s it's less of an issue that 7 years age difference but if we're talking that these characters have to remain in their 20s like all comic book characters seem to have to be then yeah 29 to 21 that's a pretty huge maturity gap and you know if 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 barbara is 23 and he's even younger. What's the math on that, Lisa? 23, 17. Uh, 16,
0: oh. he would be 16. Yeah,
1: that's no good.
0: No, no, <laughs>
1: we do not approve.
0: <laughs> but along with the bad cop nursemaid, she's also been the good cop. She had a chocolate malt flown in from Gotham.
1: That's a pretty, pretty good freezer that they've got that can maintain that Gotham chocolate malt.
0: That's one of those things that's always in movies where someone's like, hey, you're from New York? I have this New York pizza. Yeah, but a
1: pizza is one thing and a malt's another.
0: I think that. Uh, I. What are you supposed to do? Like reheat it, refreeze it. F- food does not fly.
1: Nevertheless, waking up to a malt after your coma—pretty great. Way to go, Babs.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. A uh, baller move. Baller Very move. Huge carbon footprint. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All over that malt.
0: And the malt, of course, tastes like chocolate and memories.
1: Yeah, it's, it serves as a flashback to, I guess, one of their first dates. Or their, their
0: very first date. In fact, they're on on the stage of, like, the diner matron, waitress. Why did I say diner matron? The waitress was like, uh, you know, two hamburgers for these two kids on their dates. And, they're, and um, Babs is like, this is not a date, is it? Is it a date? And he's like, I don't know, is it? It's a very cute state. It doesn't
1: last really... for a date too long because uh, it's Gotham. They're needed as vigilantes.
0: That's right. And and who's the villain? Oh, we have this little moment where uh, Dick creepily watches her change in the back of a Rolls Royce. Every 16-year-old kid's dream.
1: Certainly every male 16-year-old comic book writer's dream.
0: Oh, yeah. But now it's gonna get way sexier because who's the villain? Crazy Quilt. Crazy Quilt. And he like mind bends them into getting into a safe, I guess. Yeah,
1: he uses colors or something. Yeah, I mean, I do appreciate how every time we go back to the dynamite duo era, they're battling crazy quilt, killer moth, the condiment cavalier, king. the condiment king. Yeah, yeah. They've got real C-list, D-list, <laughs> Z-list villains.
0: I think that's appropriate for a sophomore in high school. Junior, sixteen? I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah. Especially considering that Crazy Quilt takes them down almost immediately.
0: Oh uh, yeah, in one panel, and they're all creviced together oh um, in oh that safe.
1: Oh gosh.
0: And uh, Babs looks askance at his pixie boots, and he wonders aloud why he decided to go boots and booty shorts, <laughs> or I guess bloomers. And he and I'm going to just read his quote because I find this very insightful. It makes bad guys think I'm just some goofy kid. Their underestimation gives me an extra element of surprise, to which she replies, that's weird. (laughs) That's weird. Um, I
1: I, I like his, I think think it makes sense to me. I think if Robin jumped out of the shadows, looking as he does, the first time I encountered him, I would be, uh, I would laugh at him, and in that laughter, he'd be able to deliver one good punch to the jaw.
0: And I think this parallels back to the Bronze Age, When uh, that detective is like, why you got to make so many jokes all the time? Like
1: He's a self-deprecator. That's right. So you think that's all total BS? You think that that is just a costume that he loved because he's a kid of the circus and that's his style?
0: Yeah, I think he might have. uh, This is a little back justification. (laughs) Uh, Of course, uh, he notices how nice she smells. And uh, we get the priceless line. That are that better be your utility belt pushing against my leg.
1: I'm surprised that the comic goes and answers that question, and it is most definitely not his utility belt.
0: I'm scandalized. (laughs) I mean,
1: I, I honestly blushed for Robin when we turned the page.
0: Oh, yeah, and then, of course, Batman is there to save the day, and poor Dick Grayson is crouched over himself having to hide his embarrassment... Uh, behind his cape.
1: This is why you hire Joe Bennett. He nails that scene. You feel like Joe Bennett's lived that scene. He knows that <laughs> pain.
0: I, I, I mean, I certainly don't know that pain, but I know that that's going to be universal to very many. Uh, people, penis having
1: people. You have to waistband that thing, kid.
0: Yeah, and he doesn't have a waistband. (laughs) (laughs) What is he supposed to do? Invest it in his vest? (laughs) That's stupid.
1: (laughs) Terrible, terrible, terrible. But that is a really good climax to that flashback. Now we are in the present. Dick is practicing on the parallel bars. He's trying to get back his strength and he's not doing such a great job.
0: Yeah, and Babs is trying to just like get him to calm down. And she's like, you are light years ahead of where I was in my rehab. Like This pain is the pain of your brain making connections again. And she's like, okay, let's just move on to the ring. And he's (laughs) like, oh man, I knew she was gonna bring this up, the engagement ring, and he's super awkward about it. And she's like, the gym rings, Dick, (laughs) not the engagement ring and uh, he's like, he's super humiliated, but then he goes to the rings, he performs great, and he's like, hey, what do you know? I did much better than I thought I would. To which she replies, see, I know you better than you do.
1: Can we go back to the first page where he proposed? Because she never answered on the tarmac at the airport. He interrupted her, right, with that shh. Right. Uh, So what's the deal here? Why, one, he asked her, to marry her, and uh, will you marry me? And then he interrupts her, never gets an answer, then goes into a coma. So why like, why did he even interrupt her in the first place back on page one?
0: I think that he didn't know what she was going to say. Like then, from, yeah, from the again, dialogue. why
1: ask, why ask? So he asked, and then he immediately regrets it upon, a, no, uh, upon it coming I, out of his lips?
0: I think he thinks there's a good chance that she's going to say no but he doesn't want he doesn't want to die with her not knowing that he wanted to marry her so mm. he gives her the ring but it is like don't answer because if you i like i don't want to go fly into a crisis on a no
1: uh-huh. so instead of coming out of the coma and getting right back into that conversation from the airport it, it just time stretches and it just becomes more and more uh, unspoken. It becomes a larger and larger elephant in the room.
0: In his head, I think. I think he's definitely been brewing and stewing on it, which is why he's waiting for her to bring it up, where I think she's been entirely invested in getting her partner, getting her best friend back into
1: shape. But now because of his awkwardness and, and the guilt that he's experiencing, shouldn't it be addressed in this moment? And yet it still lingers on.
0: I think it is a question of openness. Like, he clearly has this emotion. He wants to share it with her and relieve some of this anxiety. And she says, No, we're going to put it on the back burner. Like, I can understand, like, because sometimes, like, relationship stuff does come up, but, like, you're living life. You can't address everything right away. And there are times where you're like, this is a huge conversation. Let's put it on the back burner for now to return to it.
1: I but don't, they don't even do that here in this no, moment. They, they should s- have like, like we're going to need to talk about that in a moment.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So like to me, I'm kind of on team dick on these two pages. Also because of her, see, I know you better than you do. because that That's falls- some passive
1: aggressive stuff.
0: That's passive aggressive. And also that's I know your mind stuff, which has to do with separateness. Which, like... She is, you never fully know your partner's mind because your partner is making up their mind all of the time. So that I don't think that that's a particularly understanding or kind thing to say.
1: But I'm with Barbara because I understand her pain and her anger and her frustration in this moment because of that first page way back when, before Crisis, when he was going off on his adventure and he shushes her before she could even answer.
0: Especially because we know where this comic is going. Yes. Because she wanted to say no. She currently wants to say know so it's like brutal. so now it's just weighing on her conscience like oh i can't tell him now he's in a coma he's not gonna hear it. i can't tell him now because he's getting out of a coma i can't tell him now because we're rehabbing
1: there's so much tension there's so much tension in this awkwardness
0: that's right i wonder like who like who would she triangle with could she talk to batman about it no
1: no 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 but she might be able to talk to you know black canary
0: oh yeah she needs a girlfriend
1: she has her girlfriend she's got her birds of prey
0: Maybe the girl talk happened between the pages.
1: I want to know what Dr. Midnight has to say.
0: What? Because he's a doctor? No,
1: because he's impartial. He doesn't really care what's going on between the sheets between these two. You know, it's a soap opera to him.
0: Oh, ooh, I love that. Behind the goggles, he's just leering.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But after um, Barbara, you know, jabs him with that final bit of dialogue, the next scene is the next day, and they're at Reeve Park, and they are discussing, once again, that, Why didn't you answer? Why did I propose in that moment? There's all that awkwardness.
0: Yeah, and it's on Dick again to bring it up.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's great is he says, you know, look, Barbara, you know, I've always loved you. And that leads us back to another flashback to Batman Family Number 13 from our last Dick and Babs episode where he is confessing his love as Robin, as a very young Robin, to Barbara Gordon who is asleep on the couch. But- She's not asleep on the couch. Revelation.
0: Turns out she was just faking it because he was being entirely too awkward. This. And he
1: totally was. Go back to that issue. I mean, the dialogue
0: is here. Like, um, Barbara, I'm a big boy now and I have things to say. Like, it's the worst. I I mean, maybe Babs made the right move by uh, distancing herself by fake sleeping. Well,
1: in the retcon of this scene from Batman Family Number 13, they leave out a large portion of that rambling confessional that Robin left Barbara on that couch.
0: Yeah. But like the entire scene, the context is different because now they're both 16 or 17 years old. Right,
1: right, right, right.
0: And of course, like present day, Dick Grayson is aghast and really embarrassed. And he was like, how could you do that to me? And she was like, she should have been like, well, I was 16 and dumb, but she's like, you are not in the best place with you and Batman. And you were rejecting all things Batman. And so like in your rejection of him, was I gonna be rolled up into that? Like she had feelings for him, but he just didn't seem stable at that time. And then when she finally got up the gumption to go to his door, knock, 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 with her chocolates and her flowers, uh,
1: who gets the door? Starfire. That's right, Corey. And she is practically naked.
0: Yeah, she is. And- Babs, super cool friend, does not want to uh, C-block him. (laughs) And she's like, you're losing your virginity to uh, a rock-hard bod alien? Like, I didn't want to get in the way of that. And then apparently, she later found a a boyfriend of her own. And so just the timing when they were teens just didn't quite work out.
1: Back in the present... Dick has like this muscle spasm and Babs, you know, immediately goes to his aid and he goes, you know, like, you're always there for me, uh, Babs. And that's amazing because I have not always been there for you and referencing the killing joke again. And we get the flashback Joker shooting her, her coming out of her experience, recovering through all of that. And I guess Robin during that time was in outer space hanging out with the Teen Titans and Corey.
0: Right, and so he didn't find out until six months after. And
1: Lisa, this scene is nuts, okay? He comes back, he's got roses for her, knocks on her door, um, he apologizes, he's great at apologizing, and he's like, I wish, I, I wish I'd been here for you, and she shushes him. She interrupts him. And they get down.
0: Yeah, so they start making out, and then next panel, they're in bed together. And the next panel, they uh, Babs is waking up all sunny and happy, and like, what do you want to do today? And he's like, I have to give you something, and it's an engagement announcement ah! for him and Corey. Ah! And of course, <laughs> Babs is. Hurt and furious, filled and with she, rage, and she's like, "Okay, so you come back from outer space, and you're giving me now pity, pity sex."
1: Yeah, this this is diabolical. What Dick Grayson has done in this moment is unforgivable. Like I, I, I just would never get back with that person. There would be no recovery from this moment.
0: I do not identify with like they're they're kissing, and now they're in bed, like there was a thousand opportunities for him to say, we can't do this. I'm committed to somebody else. Like, you know, your, your, bo- your clothes don't just like explode at- off of your body. And then you've had sex. It's too late.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is almost premeditated. <laughs>
0: like- it's, it's heartbreaking. And then Babs narration is, I don't know who I was madder at that night, you or me. And I'm like, Babs, it's, it should be Dick. You should so, be the maddest at Dick.
1: So the entire time I'm reading this issue, I'm coming from the point of, I like Dick and Babs together. I want them to be together forever. From page one, all right? And then the coma stuff. And then, you know, uh the recovery and the flashbacks to the Batman family era, the flashback to the couch. But when we get to this page, I am punched in the gut. I am so angry. I am fully on board with... Barbara's rage, and when you replay these earlier pages with this knowledge, like when you look back at Babs shooting dagger eyes at Dick while he is on the gymnast uh, parallel bars, you now go like, oh, I get her passive aggressiveness, she's way too nice. Uh,
0: like, to me, the only way I can like con- contextualize this in his character is that like he is a people pleaser, and I mean, I, that's a huge stretch going like, you know, like going like he didn't want to say he's engaged because he didn't want to disappoint her in that moment. But like, it's so cowardly. It's so cowardly. And like, just as like, there's just so. No. I mean,
1: so it, it would have been different if they had sex and he decides either before that moment or at that moment that he and Corey aren't.
0: A A thing anymore.
1: anymore. Like uh, this has really always been the relationship. But the fact that he's like now, I need to go back to my real girlfriend.
0: Yeah. Well, there's no, there's no way to do it where he's not a dirtbag. Like there's just no way to do it. I think that people need to be accountable for their actions. Like, yeah, this, this cannot be aligned with his principles.
1: Yeah, but this is another flashback. We got to get back to that present, Lisa. How do we, how do we recover from this knowledge?
0: Barbara is coaching. Dick, who is in full Nightwing regalia through this obstacle where he's hanging over spikes, and he narrowly misses the spikes uh, right before his strength gives out. But once he's on the ground, he realizes, those are not real spikes, they're rubber spikes. (laughs) And he's like, you know, Batman would have used real spikes. And she's like, I'm not Batman. Also, Batman, that's a little messed up. (laughs) Like, he was a child. And uh, she goes on to say, like, I'm sick of you apologizing to me. If we're gonna have any kind of future together, we need to find a way for you to get over your guilt. And of course, they're up uh, interrupted from a phone call from Bruce, which Nightwing is like, I've gotta get take this. And she's like, that's typical. And he meets Batman on the roof, and Batman is like, hey, I'm throwing a family retreat. I'd really like you to be there. Uh, I need an answer by Friday. Which like, apparently Batman has not fully embraced that his Bat family is made up of <laughs> individuals <No. laughs> because his request comes across as an ultimatum, which Nightwing hears as an ultimatum. So he goes back to Phil Bab's in, and she's like, "Bruce already talked to me about this, and I've already kind of told him that I want you to go, and you're going." And he was like, "Which I find rude." And then Nightwing is like, well, don't you want me to stay? And she's like, this is about what you want. And by the way, I'm giving your non-engagement engagement engagement ring back. Um, And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. I've been through what you've been through. I didn't really truly find myself until after I'd been shot. And up until then, I had just been living up to everybody else's expectations and You need to do the same thing. Of course, you can still walk.
1: Barbara is incredibly proud of how she pulled herself out of despair, right? She should be. She would like Nightwing, Dick, to experience something similar. She feels like he needs to go through a transformation like she did before they can ever be on the same playing field.
0: I do think, though, that she's forcing her hand.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because
0: she is saying, like, I know what's best for you. I know your mind. I know what you want, which is not how partnerships work. She's also giving him a taste of his own medicine because she's like, I'm giving you the engagement ring back. And guess what? We're not going to talk about it because you're about to get onto a plane. So to add insult to injury, the next morning when he's supposed to travel, she's nowhere to be found. And there is a a dear John letter, a dear Dick letter that says, like, I love you, but I need you to love yourself and you need to stop defining yourself by others. So I'll be here when you get back. And um, she has this closing line. I can't wait to meet Dick Grayson. I'm sure he's a pretty amazing guy, which I think is like a nice sentiment, but weird after you've been saying this whole time, I know you better than you know you. No, no, no,
1: it goes back to she wants him to go through the transformation that she went through. She wants him to experience what she went through, but Dick, Dick doesn't has not had her experience. He, you know he he can't really relate to it given the circumstances of crisis and he tries to gain some of this power back at the very end of the comic when he fires back with another letter to her containing the engagement ring
0: right on a chain. yeah. so now like, the the non-engagement engagement engagement ring has made a lateral move to a promise ring.
1: Feels like a shackle. (laughs)
0: Uh, I don't know. Uh, But she appreciates it because her last line is, I'm going to hold you to that one, Grayson. I think uh, this parallels very much the Kelly Thompson, Rogan Gambit, Ring of Fire story where they're kind of having flashbacks to all of these seemingly insurmountable incidents of their past, And, like, the moral of the story is you have to be able to let go of your past and just be with the person who is in front of you in the present.
1: I mean, forgiveness is essential to overcoming a situation like the Starfire uh, engagement, right? And,
0: and forgiveness is also optional.
1: For- forgiveness is optional, but in the Rogue and Gambit storyline, which we covered many moons ago, uh, they were able to overcome it, right? Because they recognized that they had both gone through different changes and they they were not the people who did those things. That has not happened yet by the end of this issue.
0: Certainly not. And I, I think it's supposed to leave us on the super hopeful note since she does wear the engagement ring now on a chain around her neck like she is going steady like in the
1: 50s. Or trapped in the Bronze Age.
0: Oh yeah, so I don't know. Like a lot has to happen to heal their past from my perspective. Like I I certainly don't think their relationship is in the right spot to say we definitely function together.
1: Part of me would love to go back and read the issues that immediately followed this in Nightwing and Birds of Prey. Um, But I also know that the new 52 is coming, and a lot of those issues are going to be not necessarily erased, but rejiggered when she becomes Batgirl again, right? Yeah, yeah. And for me, it would take a reboot to get over that one scene in this issue. Yeah. Where does this relationship land in terms of Dr. Roberta Gilbert and extraordinary relationships?
0: I think she would go back to the SEO, right? The separateness equality, and openness. I think that right now, Dick Grayson is not necessarily being responsible for his own happiness and his own emotional fulfillment. I think that he is looking in a way for Barbara Gordon to complete him. And she is saying, you need to work on you. I need to work on me. Maybe they need to do A a, um, inventory of principles and see really where they stand as two separate people. And
1: don't you think that Barbara has to ask herself if she really wants to be with this dude?
0: I think absolutely. I think she also needs to stop thinking for him and... speaking from his perspective. They they both need to do that. They both fall back on I've known you so many years that I know you as a whole person and and that's just never the case. And that
1: is a problem for any couple that has known each other in various stages, right? As friends, as uh, acquaintances, as co-workers and as lovers.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, like I think that that's a problem in any relationship. Like I know that my siblings still see me as the kid who cried too easy and and things (laughs) like that. I'm still, I guess, kind of that kid. But I don't like being seen that way. Okay. So let's move on to equality. Like, Barbara, like, in the proposal, Dick Grayson said, you are overfunctioning. You're taking too much care of me. And now he had literally just come out of a coma, but that pattern has not changed where – she is overfunctioning to um, cover for what she considers his inadequacies. So they also need to work on their equality and openness. It took them practically this entire book to talk about what was introduced on that second page. The Dick Grayson is like, "I want to marry you, but I don't want you to tell me no." And her going like, I want to tell you no, but I'm going to wait until it's the perfect time. Like, so clearly they don't have a flow going. Um, Another thing that I think Dr. Gilbert, I haven't talked about it a lot um, because I don't necessarily agree with it in every context. But I think that um, Dr. Gilbert would also tell them to return to their family of origin. Now, Dick Grayson's family of origin is dead. So like, there's no healing those relationships. I think he needs to continue to work on his- So
1: is Barbara's though, because remember, she's the adoptive uh, daughter of Commissioner Gordon. Oh, you make an excellent point. They are orphans, both of them.
0: Oh, that's true. But I think that Dick Grayson has to come a long way in healing his relationship with Bruce Wayne, because I think that- he is using like a lot of his emotional sponge is kind of um soaked with this underlying tension with Bruce Wayne and then same with Barbara where she still has some discomfort in her in her comfort with her father so like if she went if they went back to their respective families for a little bit and worked on healing those relationships so that they both have a little bit more emotional capacity, um, I think Dr. Gilbert would definitely.
1: Theoretically, that's what's going to happen with Tim, Dick, and Bruce on this vacation.
0: Well, I hope it does wonders because uh, (laughs) Bruce Wayne's invitation was lacking. (laughs) There are a couple of issues that I have with extraordinary relationships as a book that I feel like we're three episodes in with Dr. Gilbert and I've been kind of glossing over cause there is so much about the Bowen family systems theory that I do really appreciate, but there's a lot of things where I I just feel like um, it's not a complete idea and people are going to feel excluded from the language that she uses in her book.
1: Uh, in, in what way?
0: Firstly, she refers to couples in the gender binary. It's always Mm -hmm. Mr. Letter and Mrs. Same Letter. Um, And also, she refers to the smallest um, emotional unit being the nuclear family. And I think that there are a lot of people that that's not necessarily going to apply to. And I do with my whole heart, believe that people can build their own family systems out of whomever. Yeah. Also, she does, like, her first advice is always to return to the family of origin and heal those relationships. But even, like, we can't even say that for Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon. Because Dick is an orphan and so is Barbara. And uh, she, even her adoptive parents are incomplete. Right. And... Um, and even outside of, so it excludes children of adoption. What about children who have been through the foster system? Right. Or uh, we have a very close friend of ours who is entirely estranged from one of his parents. He has no idea how he would even begin to find her to, to heal that relationship. And I, I do think that there are situations where you do have to, cut off your family of origin. If they, yeah. if they have rejected you because of some bigoted reason and they've pushed you out of their their home, they don't deserve a relationship with you. I do think that there are reasons why there should be cut off in a family. Also, she is always talking about de-escalating the emotion of a situation, by, you know, like, remove yourself from the emotion. Everybody will calm down, and the whole thing will be de-escalated. But I don't think she's holding people accountable for their actions. She actually, in one chapter, and I had to read this section, like, 17 times to figure out exactly what she was saying. But she was saying, like, women who are physically abused by their partner added to the tension of the situation by not de-escalating it. And uh,
1: putting the onus on them, the victim.
0: Well, like the fact is like two people are responsible for an interaction where I go like, yeah, but he should still be accountable for his action. Yeah. It shouldn't just be on the woman yeah. to deescalate. And I think what she was trying to say is m- there are a lot of situations and perhaps statistically more often than not. An abused woman will go back to the abuser, and I think it would be handy to teach that woman de-escalating strategies. But at the same time, I would, I would prefer her not to go back. Right. Like I think that if you are being hit, that is a misalignment of principles that cannot be overcome. So, um, so I do think that there are like cutoff is an a viable option, and yeah, there's gonna be a lot of emotional hurt that goes along with that, but I personally think that an individual who is making new fusions, building their family, can launder that emotional uh, after effect through a new family. Final issue with Dr. Gilbert, she is not a very good writer. The reading (laughs) is very dry, and it takes a lot of retooling on my part as the reader to put what I have learned into a context that I can understand and express on a podcast. And I, and I do not feel like the lim- limitation is on my end.
1: <laughs> well, I live with you and I know it's been a challenge finding David through this hunk of rock.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's not very cohesive. It's not very coherent. Like this is the kind of book that I read and I go like, I wish I was an editor because I really could punch this. I really could punch this up and kind of make it a little bit more woke, a little bit more accessible. But that's neither here nor there. Maybe that's why these really great ideas have not made it very far because this is the only book on Bowen Family Systems Theory. Ouch. I I, I think the content is good. Mm. I have gotten a lot out of reading this. I have been applying a lot of the de-escalating- You just thing. want to rework it. Yeah, yeah.
1: And you have.
0: Yeah. I hope that Roberta Gilbert doesn't listen to this. <laughs> oh no. Okay. But Brad, yeah. a, has there been anything either from- our love guru talk, or um, what we've learned from Barbara and Dick that you would like to apply to our relationship?
1: Well, from the Dick and Bab stuff, I think what I take away specifically from this issue is how you really shouldn't try to lay your narrative for yourself on top of your partner.
0: Oh, good one.
1: You have to let them be them, right? And I think that kind of relates to Roberta M. Gilbert in the sense that, you know, you have to master the individual before you can uh, work on the togetherness. You have to have the emotional capacity before you can take another person on. And and where do you fall on it? What have you learned? What are you, where are you applying?
0: I also am taking from the category of separateness, but the idea that each person in a partnership can only speak for themselves. And we saw Barbara compulsively thinking and talking for Dick, and he felt very minimalized by it. He he was hurt by it. And I think that sometimes we use like finishing another person's sentence or reflecting back what you think they're saying as a sign of listening But in fact, it is taking back the mind car and going like, oh, I see where you're going. Where it's like, that's not fair. And we do that a lot to each other where like somebody grabs the steering wheel thinking, I know where this car is headed. And then the other person goes, now I've completely lost my
1: thought. I also think that's a product of the culture, right? If you watch romantic comedies and or just romances in general, there's always that couple who finishes each other's sentences and they're held in some high regard. Like all couples should be reaching that level of mind meld. And that's just not true.
0: Yeah, no. Um, I also like what she has to say about listening and that listening should be 100% empathy. I know that to be true, but I do think that it is a a practice that I have to embody of when I'm listening, I don't get to think about what I'm going to say next. I don't get to interject (laughs) and add my thought. like. I have to be along for the ride when another person is speaking. It's
1: hard for a podcast.
0: Oh, man. Of course, when you're running the soundboard, too. Like, you have (laughs) a lot going on.
1: (laughs) Well, that's going to bring us to the end of this episode. Next week is our final conversation centered around Dick and Babs, and we're closing it all out on the comic book series that faithful listener Dr. Dina was most eager for us to talk about when she first suggested this couple weeks back.
0: We're hopping universes! Yeah,
1: we are, for the two-issue miniseries Convergence, Nightwing and Oracle, which was published from June to July of 2015. It's written by Gail Simone, penciled by Jan Duracima, and inked by Dan Parsons. I'm super excited because Birds of Prey was at its peak under Gail Simone's umbrella. And while I've never read this particular Convergence storyline, I'm a big fan of the Shazam Batman Gotham by Gaslight spinoff. This should be fun. Basic gist, Lisa, is that the diabolical Brainiac is collecting various cities from the multiverse and pitting them against each other. Who will show up to battle Nightwing and Oracle, Lisa? I'm not telling.
0: I hope that it's Calendar Man.
1: It's not.
0: (laughs) Okay, Brad, I have taken a side glance. At the clock king. (laughs) And he's telling me it's time to wrap up this episode. So where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you?
1: You can find me on all social medias at mouthdork. Don't forget, you can email the podcast by writing to cbccpodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. And you, Lisa? Yes? You right there sitting across from me. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you?
0: I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. And you can commit to this podcast by following us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast by subscribing to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and iTunes. And while you're on iTunes, why not give us the gift of five stars? It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. Yeah,
1: we want them, guys. We need them. We need them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Until next time, keep your love tank full.
0: And your psychic rapport open.